Cynthia Dill. The show this week is called Impeachment Hot Takes and Super Bowl 54. I hope you enjoy it. And also, please consider joining me tomorrow, Saturday, January 25th, 2020, on News Radio WGAN beginning at 10. I'm hosting Inside Maine and would love to have you call me. Impeachment Hot Takes and Super Bowl 54. The timeline on impeachment is noteworthy. So much has happened since the August 12th whistleblower complaint was filed with the Inspector General's office by a CIA analyst. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat from California, announced the beginning of an official impeachment inquiry on September 24th, 2019. Closed door hearings and subpoenaed documents related to the President's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky followed. Two weeks of public hearings in November, followed by the House Intelligence Committee report that was sent to the House Judiciary Committee, which held its own hearings, resulted in Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats announcing the articles of impeachment against Donald Trump on December 10, 2020, after which the Judiciary Committee swiftly approved the two articles, Abuse of Power and Obstruction of Congress. The full House of Representatives adopted both articles of impeachment against President Trump on December 18th, and he became the third president in America to be impeached. So here we are. It's January 24th, 2020, less than six months later, and the Democratic House managers are finishing up putting on their case. Tomorrow, the president will begin his defense. The case I was in court on today in a civil matter for a client That will likely take three or four years to get finally resolved. Justice delayed is justice denied, and so much of our legal system and our justice system is about delay. So my first thought about the impeachment trial is how quickly it came together and how well it's been choreographed by not only the Democrats, but by the institution of the Senate. The pageantry and the carefully prepared remarks produced on such relatively short notice, I think give society comfort about our institutions and about our government. I believe that it would be very good for the country, but also for President Trump's approval rating, if he would soon publicly announce that he will abide by whatever the verdict the Senate reaches. And I expect that messaging to to not even phase people as being completely contradictory to what he's been saying all along about it being a hoax. Um, But the name of the game for the president is to improve his approval rating so that after this show that he often loves starring in shows, um, he'll come out um, with more people approving him than before it. (laughs) Do I think the Democrats have made their case yet? Not, Not yet. We won't know, really, the impact that the Democrats have had until we see what the defense is, i.e., what the president does in the next several days as the White House has an opportunity to put on its case. I think if the White House and Republicans stick to complaints and outrage about process, after clearly making the process as difficult as possible in the House proceedings, I think there may be a few Republican swing votes to remove Donald Trump from office that we could perhaps count on, but it would take a tsunami of new evidence or radical change in public opinion for the president to be removed. 
Remember, it takes a super majority, 67 votes out of the 100 votes in the Senate, to convict and remove President Trump from office. There are 53 Republican senators, so that means in order to convict and remove President Trump, the Democrats would need to convince 20 Republicans to join them in voting to convict and remove, because there's 47 Democrats, plus they'd need 20 Republicans to equal 67, which is the supermajority. The moderate senators, who may be amenable to crossing party lines, include Maine's Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, Mitt Romney from Utah, and Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, and there may be others. Now, some of these so-called moderates, in my view, they might join Democrats on procedural motions that require only a majority vote. So, for instance, on the issue or the question of whether or not to have more documents or witnesses available for the Senate to consider, there needs to be simply a majority. So that's 51 votes. So I think the Democrats can likely rely on some of the moderate senators to um, vote with them on um, broadening the impeachment process to include more evidence. But it really seems unlikely that they would be able to convince as many as they need to actually have a conviction. So the question becomes, well, then, what is the point? Um, I think the Republicans can do at least two things on top of fighting these procedural battles. Um, Obviously, their goal is to limit the evidence as much as possible because the House managers have the burden of proof. So the less evidence there is, the less likely the House managers will be able to meet their burden of proof of demonstrating by preponderance of the evidence that a high crime or misdemeanor has been convi- has been um, committed. Um, it's curious to me to see whether they're going to argue the facts or if they're going to argue the law. Um, the White House team of lawyers is um, White House lawyer Pat Cipollone, uh, Donald Trump's personal attorney Jay Sekulow, Ken Starr, who's famous, infamous to some um, for investigating the Clintons, and Alan Dershowitz, who is a Um, well-known Harvard professor who was also involved in very um, public trials. So if the White House team in the the coming days, when they have their three days to mount a defense, if they can um, put on a credible case that assumes the facts alleged by the Articles of Impeachment to be true, but they argue that the facts do not rise to the level of an impeachable offense, Um, Trump wins, like what happened with the Clinton impeachment trial. Um, The Senate found that the conduct simply didn't rise to the level of an impeachment, impeachable offense. There's a chance they might try to disprove the House manager's case on the facts for abuse of power and obstruction, say by showing other presidents engaging in conduct similar or consistent with Trump's bargaining for personal political favors using public resources intended for national security of the country, but that seems impossible. Um, There's a chance the White House will argue it was just a joke. You know, the president was just joking around. Um, And the president, I think we can expect, will surely continue to beat the witch hunt drum. And most likely, um, two sides won't be swayed. Uh, The only thing that can change um, the outcome in my view, is if there's a massive shift in public opinion, which also appears extremely unlikely. 
According to Pew Research Center, published on just a couple days ago, right now, roughly half of the United States U.S. adults, 51%, say the outcome of the Senate trial should be President Trump's removal from office, while 46% say the result should lead to President Trump remaining in office. Now, of course, an overwhelming share of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents, 86% actually, say that the trial should result in Trump remaining in office, while roughly the same share of Democrats and Democratic leaners, 85%, think Trump should be removed. So (laughs) because there's such a evenly split popular opinion, public opinion, about the issue, and this is a political process where the senators will largely be driven by the evidence, but also by what the public, how the public interprets the evidence. I think we can expect um, a partisan, a vote that's largely along partisan line in favor of the president because he has the numbers in the Senate. So the question is, well, why is why are the Democrats repeating themselves? The question has been raised: Are, are they repeating themselves? Is that ineffective? And I think precisely because the case is being made primarily to the American public to shape public opinion in their favor and therefore provide political coverage for Republicans um, who you know would need to defy Trump in order to vote to remove him. I think that the Democrats hammering home the basic narrative over and over again during the course of their three days has been actually very effective. The Democrats are smart to hammer home the basic narrative of Donald Trump using his position as President of the United States to pressure a foreign government to interfere in a U.S. election by announcing a criminal investigation of Joe Biden, Trump's biggest rival. The repetition of that narrative is necessary and effective because most Americans tune in and tune out throughout the proceeding, and whenever somebody tunes in, the same story needs to be told. So the repetition by the Democrats, I think, is effective. It's a TV thing. People are used to seeing the same thing over and over again. And I think we can probably expect the Republicans to do the same. The most compelling evidence or argument that convinces me that the conduct rises to the level of an impeachable offense is the national security threat. It really didn't quite hit home until I listened to the presentation of the evidence over the last several days, what was at stake. And it really is important that when the United States Congress authorizes money to be spent in our national interest, our national security interests, by providing it to an ally who's fighting our enemy, Russia, that those funds get used to protect us, this taxpayer money, and instead... um, the president is using our resources, public resources, to further his own um, political advantage. And that, in my mind, is just the epitome of abuse of power. I don't think additional witnesses will change the story, but I think what the Democrats believe is that if the American public hears this story from the mouths of witnesses with personal knowledge as opposed to hearing it from senators on on the TV cameras that um, there may be a a change, enough change in public opinion to possibly sway 
um, additional Republicans. So those are my hot takes from the impeachment proceedings. Uh, generally pleased with the process, um, hopeful about the strength of the United States Senate and some of our government institutions, not optimistic about the outcome, but uh, believe that public opinion could change. Speaking of change, in the NFL's 100th season, the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers will battle for the league's crown in Super Bowl 54, not the New England Patriots, unfortunately for us New England fans. Kickoff is scheduled for Sunday, February 2nd at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and the game is going to be played at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens, Florida, home of the Miami Dolphins. It's the sixth time the stadium has hosted the Super Bowl, most recently in 2010, and the 11th time the game has been played in the Miami area, starting with Super Bowl number 2 in 1968. The Chiefs have played in the Super Bowl before. Um, years and years ago, they lost Super Bowl number 1 to the Green Bay Packers in the 1966 season, and then won Super Bowl 4 in the 1969 season, back when the matchups were still known as the AFL-NFL World Championship game. The 49ers have also played in six Super Bowls and won five of them in years 1981, 1984, 1988, 1989, and 1994, according to the Washington Post. They were, most, they were the most successful team of the 1980s. What will they be wearing? of course, is on your mind. The 49ers apparently wanted to wear their all-white throwback 1994 uniforms, but that won't be happening. The league apparently alternates um, home and away in each Super Bowl by conference, and the AFC champion, the Chiefs, are the home team this year, so they will be wearing their home red jerseys, while the 49ers will be wearing their traditional road uniform of white jerseys and gold pants. The game is going to be broadcast by Fox, and it will be streamed on foxsports.com. Joe Buck is going to be the play-by-play announcer. Troy Aikman will provide color commentary, and Aaron Andrews and Chris Myers will be the sideline reporters. The winner of the Super Bowl. I always wondered about this. The winner of the Super Bowl, of course, gets a Vince Lombardi trophy, which is a 22-inch tall, 7-pound sterling silver football on a stand. But each member of the winning team also gets $118,000, which is a nice piece of change. Uh, I can't afford going to the Super Bowl. The average ticket price is um, between four dollars and $5,000, according to SeatGeek. The cheapest tickets on the secondary market were more than $3,000 before Sunday's games, but prices for, you know, better seats are many multiples of that. I'm looking forward to the halftime show. Uh, Halftime performers um, will be Shakira and Jennifer Lopez, two Latina pop icons, Uh, Shakira, 42 years old, she's from Colombia, now living in Barcelona with her man and two kids. She's probably best known for the 2006 hit, Hips Don't Lie.
That's Shakira. Love Shakira. She'll be with J-Lo, who's uh, 50 years old, American actress, singer, dancer, fashion designer, businesswoman, known to pal around with A-Rod or Alex Rodriguez, uh, former baseball player. So we have J-Lo and A-Rod. Sounds like they were meant for each other. But we can't talk about the Super Bowl without a reference to my favorite team. As I said, the New England Patriots, which is the team, as you were probably wondering, what team has won the most Super Bowls? Well, the New England Patriots are tied with the Pittsburgh Steelers, each team having won six. If the San Francisco 49ers win Super Bowl 54 this year, they will join them with uh, winning six games. We'll see. I'm rooting for the 49ers. That's it for me for today. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate it. Join me on the radio tomorrow, and I'll see you next time. 